Welcome to A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Huang. This podcast is a place of exploration to learn and grow from each other on the journey to becoming our best selves. Let's get to today's show. Today, our guest is Sam Manchulenko. So Sam is a professional dancer and Dharma yoga instructor living in Winnipeg, Canada. She is the creator of the Abhyasa Living Yoga Teacher Training and a mentor in the Dharma Yoga Center's Life of a Yogi Teacher Training Program. And it's through the Dharma Yoga Center Life of Yogi Teacher Training that we met. And so welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks, Jess. It's really great to be here. It's so lovely to have you. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. So Sam, I'd love you to start off by maybe talking a little bit about the kind of like twists and turns that your life has taken you. And we can talk a little through that and how that's how you've navigated some of those changes. But maybe talking a little bit first about what what that has looked like for you. Sure. How far do you want me to go back? (laughs) (laughs) You want me to start? Um, I mean, hit hit the highlight reel, I would say. Okay, I'll hit the highlights and the lowlights. Low lights are great teachers. So basically, you know, my childhood, pretty happy child, loved to dance, um, very critical and perfectionistic as well, and didn't understand how that programming, programming was working inside my own body. I became a professional dancer And then I injured my back Mm. and had to quit. And that was my first experience of depression because I had this amazing gift that, not this amazing gift for dance, this amazing gift that I was able to realize my childhood dream. Mm. And then it seemed like, oh, it was taken so quickly. And I couldn't see anything else that I wanted to do with my life and felt very stuck and miserable, hopeless, angry, so many things. And I ended up becoming, I had a math degree before I danced, so I didn't know what to do with that. I went to back to school and studied finance and became an accountant and was even more miserable. And then uh, about a year and a half into that, they gave me a leave of absence to do a show. And I realized doing that, oh, I used to smile and laugh and stuff. So I knew I needed to make a change, but just, you know, it was very, I felt so stuck. I'm like, oh, there's security here. I don't know, you know, what I'm going to do next. So I applied for chiropractic school and then I quit that job. And then I danced a little bit. My body was healing. It could dance for a little bit at a time, but it couldn't do it full time anymore. And I kind of oscillated between these jobs that really resonated with my heart and these jobs that were completely out of alignment and fear-based because I felt I needed security and stability for a while until one day, this is another job, I was a corporate recruiter, and I spent most of my day Googling all day, what can I do with my life? What will I, you know, will I ever be happy again? And I decided anything that I was remotely interested in just to take it one step further and see you know, if I could find something that I was passionate about again. And for me, that was the Enneagram. Do you know of the Enneagram? Yes, yes. Okay. So for people who don't know of the Enneagram, it's a theory of personality types. Um, There's 
There's really an infinite number. It's plotted on a circle, but there's nine broad categories. And it's not to define you, to put you into a box, but it's to show you the general structure of your ego, where your traps are and how you can Mm. be free of it. So I went to study that in the Poconos Mountains through the Enneagram Institute, and it was my first experience with meditation and a real shifting point for me. I remember leaving, having this moment, looking at my hand and thinking, what am I doing in here? Like, (laughs) what, what am I doing inside these fingers? But before that moment, I always thought that I was my body. Mm. So yeah, it was the beginning of a shift. And then through that, I was like, what can I do more with this? I studied life coaching. I found yoga. And yoga has really been the biggest change in my life. I ended up traveling for a long time to find a teacher until I found Dharma Mitra, who is an amazing, you know, living guru. And now I'm grateful to study with him and to share. That's amazing. So, yeah, I love the way that you kind of followed this idea of, you know, dance is what made me happy. Like, how do I find that thread again versus kind of being in these jobs that don't really resonate with you as a being? So... I mean, how did that, how did it, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like what was going on in your mind as you were trying to find that little like thread of, of pathway, if you will. Sure. Well, there was probably 49% hopelessness <laughs> and 51% hope in the beginning. I really, I had this dark, dreary image of myself you know, in a station wagon, living this life I didn't want to live, driving to a job I didn't want to drive to. I'm like, oh, I need to do that for 50 years or whatever it may be. But there was a small part of me that thought, no, just keep, you, you can find it again. And I realized part of what made me so happy dancing was that that was the only time I was present so when I was dancing, I wasn't thinking. My, I wasn't bombarded with all these thoughts of what I should be doing and not being good enough or not doing enough. I was, I just was. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel, because I feel that when in yoga, right, that's very much like that presence of body, right? Or presence of mind and body in one place, right? And just being wholly there, do you feel like that's why like yoga kind of clicked for you and that was a very similar feeling to uh, that dance? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I realized dance was my first yoga. That was the first mm. way I learned to be present. And yeah, now yoga is, but not just the physical yoga. It's mostly the practice off the mat. And specifically the labels, you know, the when you say being wholly present in the moment, I am existing in that moment without any definition after it. And I realized how much in my life I would have a word after am. I am happy. I am sad. I am, you know, I'm good right now. Or I'm bad or I'm hardworking. I'm lazy. All of these things. And you realize through yoga, all these words after am aren't true. Mm. They're temporary, right? They can, for a moment, be true, but they're just qualities moving through like clouds. And a lot of our suffering is we identify with these labels. So we think, I am this. Sometimes, sometimes I am this. Sometimes I'm that. But yoga really teaches you how to be just present. And 
accepting of what's happening in the present moment, which I think is actually what love is. Mm. Yeah, so actually that's a really great pivot into talking about your teacher training, right? So from my understanding that you bring a lot of that kind of self-love, self-compassion into that program. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I love your kind of thread around love being such a big component of it all. Sure. Yeah. Self-compassion is, it's my passion right now. Yeah. Um, But I always have been curious about what is love really and forgiveness, all these concepts. And I realize as I look out at things I've thought, I love this, I don't like this, that's all conditional love, Mm. right? Whenever we're looking out for the qualities. And it comes from a lot of what we like or dislike outside of ourselves is a projection of what we like or dislike going on inside of ourselves. So the parts of us that we're not able to hold compassionately Maybe I'll share a story to like help with this. Yeah. But I, and you know, I also realized my injury when I reflect on it now, it was caused by a lack of self-compassion. I was so hard on my body. I never appreciated, wow, thank you. You give me this gift that I get to dance and express through you. Instead, I was, you know, pushing it too hard and not feeding it well and burning it out and constantly criticizing it that it was the wrong shape and the, all of these things. And our cells hear us. And so self-compassion is learning to treat ourselves the way we would a loved one. If a friend ever said to you, you know, you know, if you were struggling right now, I wouldn't come up to you and say, oh yeah, you really messed that up. You suck. Like, you know, it's hopeless. You never, you know, I'd say, it's okay. Everyone makes mistakes. Offer some guidance. Um, and so when we learn how to do that for ourselves, then our ability to extend that to others improves. And I'll share a tiny little story. So last week I was in a cafe. It was very peaceful. I had gone there to do a a little bit of work. And it was the regulars. They were all quiet and silent. And then these two women came in. So loud. (laughs) So loud. And having a conversation, a really loud, heightened conversation that we couldn't not here because nobody else was speaking and I was suffering so much I was like oh you know I could and I heard all the voices inside me I heard there you know one voice wanted to say quiet right and another slightly wiser voice wanted to go over and say excuse me would you mind talking a little quieter and then I think the wisest voice just said just watch right now watch your reactivity And I allowed myself to be crazy for a while. I saw another guy in there, like other people were suffering too. They put their AirPods in and kind of looking what's going on. I watched the insanity, all those little voices in my head. And then after a few minutes, I said, okay, do some work now, Sam. And I decided to sit and think, you know, obviously I've been the loud person in a coffee shop before, right? I've done that. We've all done this. And so I sat and I reflected, what is alive in you when you're behaving that way? And this was a job interview. So instantly, 
you know, that thing that comes up in us sometimes when we're trying to prove that we're worthy or good enough or not feeling enough, all these things came up and I reflected Mm -hmm. on, you know, what's, what emotions are alive in me? What fears are alive when that's happening? And then I sat and offered that version of myself, self-compassion. It wasn't active in that moment, but I can see, oh, that's been active before. And I wasn't able to see it and hold space for it. And really, I just, no one, everyone would have thought I was just working on my computer, right? (laughs) But I was reading. I had one hand on my heart and the other on my stomach and took some breaths and just mentally said, I'm sorry you've thought that was true about you before. I'm sorry that's who you thought you were. And it's okay. You know, it's all right that you acted that way. You had, you didn't know any better. That was your conditions at that time. Yeah. And just after a few minutes of doing this practice, instantly I felt compassion for these women. And then Mm. it was fine. And then I didn't even hear them anymore. I could focus on my work. But I think a lot of tolerance, our ability to be peace is really determined by our ability to have peace inside here. The whole planet's inside our whole body. And whatever we can't tolerate outside of us, there's likely a little bit, an inner kid inside of us that needs some comfort and compassion to be seen so that we're not judging it every time we see it outside of ourselves. We're not reactive. Instead, you know, and Dharma says, many people say this, but love is the only medicine. You know, you can't remove hate with hate. And like I, I said a little while ago, I think this pure acceptance, that's love. This unconditional holding of the moment. Not what we have been trained to think, this heightened, oh, I'm so in love with you. Like, usually that's, I'm so attached to you. And when you're gone, I'll be miserable. Right. But the real love we can always have, regardless of what's happening outside of us. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, I think... So to me, self-compassion has been one of the biggest things I've been working on. And it's mm. such, it's a practice, right? And I, I relate yoga and the practice to everything now where it's like, I am practicing self-compassion and some days I'm struggling and some days it feels easy, but it's that continuous feeling of like, how do I keep continuously like forgive myself and, and hold space for the different iterations of myself and, and, and be able to sit there and, and, and allow that love in, right. Allow that love for myself, allow that love, which then, you know, allows you that love for everyone else. Yeah. It takes courage also because a lot of times we don't want to see those darker aspects when they arise Mm. because we're identifying with the, what we think are the lighter qualities. When we know we're none of those qualities, they're just things moving through. Then we can sit and say, okay, Sometimes there's shame. (laughs) Sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there's jealousy. Sometimes there's greed. When you can see all of those things and you can soothe the one that is misidentifying with them, then they just evaporate. Mm. But when we don't have the courage or the skills to see them, we know what they do. We can see in the world what they do. They they take over and subtly... Yeah. Cause harm. Well, not so subtly. We don't realize right. what they're doing, but they're in control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, through the practice, I think so much about like if everyone could find a little more self-compassion, what would this world look like? Right. Because that I, I can see in myself as I've started to kind of go on that journey, how much has changed 
my perspective of the of the world and myself. And it's like, what if everyone did a little bit of that? Yeah. Right. And the only one that we can actually control is ourselves. Absolutely. So every time, too, I catch myself, oh, I wish the world was more like this. Do it right now. Right? <laughs> Practice right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So how does that kind of translate, like, in the framework of your teacher training? Like, how much of the focus is around self-compassion? Or what does that kind of look like? Well, the very foundation of yoga is compassion. Yes. And the first teacher training I did, my students had homework to reflect throughout the week, much like Dharma does, um, on compassion. So reflect on compassion in the morning, watch themselves through the day, and then at the end of the day to do some journaling. Mm. And after that first week, they came back and they were all miserable. They're like, oh, I realized how bad I am and how much harm I cause and all of this. And I felt, no, 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 this isn't the purpose. So I realized right away, oh, okay, I need to shift the focus to self-compassion mm. because if we can't really love ourselves, we can't truly love someone else, then we we need something from them, right? If we're not able to soothe those parts of ourselves, then we're quiet, we're outside searching for someone who can soothe that or someone who can tell us, you're worthy, you're good enough, you're all of that, we're, we're desperate for that. So we want to learn how to do that for ourselves. When we don't need anything from anyone else, then we can really love them. Yeah. There's no more dependency. So all of yoga, the foundation is compassion, but it's amazing when you look, you know, there's five causes of suffering in yoga. They're called the kleshas. You can look at those through the lens of self-compassion and you can start to see, you know, how to shift everything. They, one of them is attachment, the other aversion. So we know whatever we resist persists out of self-compassion, learning when there's a challenging emotion that comes up. If we have the tools of self-compassion, instead of saying, I can't feel this, this is too much, pushing it away, which makes it stay and solidify in our body, we can see, oh, here's resistance, and I'm going to allow this to be here. I'm going to allow this unpleasant sensation to be here, but to hold it, right? And there's three, Kristen Neff uh, does a lot of the main teachings on self-compassion. I really recommend her. And, you know, the foundation, the first one is to be in the moment with mindfulness instead of story. So when there's some unpleasantness in the body, be mindful, Ah, just feel it without labeling in a story. So the story is, oh, I did this, this is terrible. And now because of this, I'm, no one will ever love me or I'll never get a job or this is going to happen. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to have to move to whatever, right? All of this craziness in the story, you're not in the present moment anymore. It's a hallucination. It's the mind, right? So being mindful is the first one when there's a struggle so that we actually can be with it. And then the second one is common humanity versus isolation. So usually when we're struggling, we think I'm the only one who does this. That We look outside, everyone else is doing well. They're all great. And I'm the only one who makes mistakes like this. We know this isn't true, right? Everyone suffers. This is part of earth school being here. So we can acknowledge this is part of life. Everyone makes mistakes. So we don't isolate ourselves. And then the third piece is offering kindness, Instead of, you idiot, you should have known better, offering some kind words like, yeah, this is difficult for you to feel and I'm willing to sit with you and be with, I'll be here with you while you go through this and hold the space for you. 
So really, the, your question was how much of it's the whole training. <laughs> we we go into all of the things. So we go into the causes of suffering. We go into the yoga philosophy. We go in to the yamas, the niyamas, everything. But um, there's so many different lenses, different angles that you can focus them on. And it's of course very helpful with compassion work to focus on how you're interacting with others. Ahimsa is, you know, treating others with this loving openness free from fear, but to remember that there's others inside our body. There's other voices in here. There's the cells of our body. So working on that relationship here, which radiates out yeah, naturally. Absolutely. I'm, I mean, that's the thing is I feel like through, through doing the teacher training, you know, it was, it opened up such a worldview into yoga and all the different pieces of the puzzle that it just feels like it's endless, the learnings, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, I, it's like how they say you can read the Bhagavad Gita a million times and it will, it will always be teaching you different things. Right. Um, and I, so I, I can see how it's like, yeah, there's such a wealth of knowledge in there, but to going back a little back to what you're saying, it is interesting, like the bit that you're saying about aversion, because I, I, you know, they say that aversion and attachment are kind of like two sides of the same coin. Right. And, um, I was in a class recently and we were talking about how it's like not only are we averting the the bad things, but we're getting too attached to trying to get back to the good Mm -hmm. and how that is also in essence creating our suffering. Right. And so it's it's that allowing that flow of life and being okay with the present moment in the good and the bad is kind of that that place of peace that personally, I've been trying to get to. And I I feel like that's, it's hard, right? And it's a practice. Yeah. Being more comfortable, being uncomfortable. Yes. Or being okay when it's not okay. Trusting that everything's unfolding perfectly. Yes. Yes. Dharma always says everything is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I I love what he always talks about um, how New York is one of the best places to practice yoga. Because it is full of trials and tribulations, you know, I, it makes me laugh every time I'm walking to yoga class and someone walking slow in front of me and, and I'm like, I need to get to class. And I'm like, but the struggle of that in and of itself is me not living in yoga, you know, in that, in that piece. Yeah. Because I'm creating a struggle right there. You know, I'm, I'm kind of mentally yelling at the guy in front of me going, <laughs> get out of my way. I got to get to yoga. <laughs> right. When you could be in yoga right there. Right. Same with me when I, you know, that story I just shared in the coffee shop, the thought came through my head, I need to do my work. And then mm-hmm. I instantly laughed at myself because there's a part of the ego that thinks that I live here to do work. But there's a wiser part that knows we're not in these bodies to get our work done. We're here to learn how to love and learn who we really are. So, of course, if I was stuck in that ego train of thought, I need to do my work, I could have closed my bags and stormed out of that cafe being right. The ego loves to be right. That person was a jerk. They should know better. They should be more <laughs> self-aware. And I would have completely missed the, the lesson and the opportunity to offer compassion to that version of myself and to learn how to love something that I didn't know how to love yet. Hmm. I love that. I love that so much. So actually, I'm curious to talk a little bit more about Enneagram, just to switch a little focus, since you said that that was a big, big part of the shift that you made. So how, how is that really playing into what you're doing now? Or, or what do you, how do you feel like that has kind of influenced um, kind of the path that you've been on? 
Yeah. I, you know, I'm not an expert of the Enneagram. So I did the first part of the training. I, for me, it helps me. I didn't understand my ego at all. I didn't even really know, you know, we talk like we identify with our thoughts. We think we are our thoughts. We think we are our body. We think we are everything that's happening here. So the Enneagram was the first time where I saw, oh, there's this programming that's happening that's not me, that actually if I get still, I can see this programming and I don't have to give into it. Hmm. And it helped me quit those jobs that I didn't love because I could see why my ego type felt stuck in those jobs because it would have seen itself as successful or these were, you know, it's that there were other beings that valued it. So I could see that makeup in it and realize, ah, there's that story. That's not my truth. So it helped me to understand my ego so that I didn't have to fall to it towards, into it so much. I don't do much work with it now. I think if I were to do it with my students, I'd have to really understand all of the types very well. And I only really went into understanding myself yeah. well. But with yoga, you know, when we go into understanding the koshas, like what we're made of, you know, we think we're made of these meat and bones and skin, but this, this is not us, right? This is just made of food, the physical body, and the different layers of the body, right? The energetic body, the mental body that has all the emotions linked to it. So whatever stories we're feeding through there, that results in emotions. And there's a link in there, you know, the ego, this idea that we're a separate self. So different stories come from that. I'm a separate self, but who am I? What is my specialness? Or all of that is kind of in the lower mind. So, you know, it was a piece. It was a step along the path, but... Yeah, it from the way that you talk about it, it sounds like it was almost like a like a gateway, mm-hmm. if you will, right? So it was kind of giving you the step in the right direction to say these things that I am doing may not really suit me because of these way in these ways. And then it kind of opened you up to the next thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It showed me some patterning and walked me the next step out of that patterning. Right, right. Because, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about, like, the, making those big changes and, like, mm. how how hard was that on you? Like, what, what did that really feel like, you know, the going through those experiences? Because, you know, as someone who is kind of going in that direction myself, I, you know, it's, it's a real struggle. And how do you kind of work through making those big decisions? Yeah. A lot of nausea. <laughs> <laughs> I... I used to feel like every time my life felt a little bit stable, I would just jump. I'm like, why do you keep jumping off the building? Why are you doing this to yourself again and again and again? But there was, it at that time, it was this dance between a little bit of numbness when I could feel I wasn't quite in the right spot. And then, okay, like many of the biggest decisions I did, there was very clear prompting, very clear direction to do it. I sold all my stuff, uh, I guess maybe about 10 years ago, and I walked into my apartment and this voice said, sell all your things and get out of your lease. And that was like, I thought I was normal. I'm like, I can't do that. I have, you know, this, you know, but there was something about it that felt right. So I decided, okay, I'm going to try this decision on for the month. I'm going for the month to say, I've decided that at the end of this month, I will get out of my lease and sell all my stuff. And if this decision feels, you know, if I wear it and it feels well, then I'm going to follow through. 
So often, instead of getting into like pros, cons lists, we can get stuck in all the mental chatter and the noise and the real answers come from, mm. you know, right from who we are, yes. the d- much deeper, wiser guidance of the heart. So I find sometimes just making a decision, saying this is what my de- decision is and setting, I'm going to sit with this for, you know, a week. And I ask for help a lot. If you don't wish me to do this, show me in a big way, right? And then wait and watch. And then, okay, there's no guidance. Keep going. The interesting thing, you know, and Dharma says it all the time in the Gita, fix your mind on me alone, rest your thoughts on me alone, and me alone you'll live hereafter. Of this, there is no doubt. Me um, can be love or what, you know, that, like what we really are, the, the essence of truth. Trying to connect to that more. Instead of what we tend to do is we go outside looking for pleasure and happiness and all the external objects, which are perishable. They're subject to time. They're not going to last. So we tend to do that when we're making decisions too. We try to make it from this impermanent aspect as opposed to tuning in with that wisdom that's inside. Okay. <laughs> you know, part of the practice of yoga is surrender. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I surrender my life to you, wiser one. What would you like to do through this body? <laughs> Where would you like it to go? What would you like it to say? And follow. And in the beginning, Dharma talks about being a pretend Ananda. You p- pretend in the beginning, <laughs> right? Just pretend. <laughs> Sometimes practice. I love to go on walks where I don't know where I'm going and stop at the corner and say, which way would you like me to turn? <laughs> And just wait and say, okay, we'll turn this way without any agenda, right? So learning just to to listen more. Mm. Do you feel like that's kind of like following your intuition, if you will? I feel like that's the phrase that people would use for that kind of feeling. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But there's different things, you know, sometimes there's a voice inside that's really uh, wanting to escape discomfort, right so sometimes it'll like get out of here go here and I you know there's no mistakes I know there's been chapters in my life where I've had to put up some pretty big walls because I wasn't able to experience this discomfort of a situation so I'd be like nope (laughs) right and maybe that was intuition too but then a few years later when I had the tools to deal with it it's come back and then I'm like okay now I can sit with this in a different layer and everything keeps coming back until yeah they say it just keeps repeating until you work your work through it right yeah when you're talking about selling your stuff I mean most people can't imagine doing that kind of Mm. thing right I mean when you're making those kind of big decisions do you feel like you're thinking that there's that like you could kind of reverse course if if you will like that I don't know if you could really reverse course right (laughs) once you sold it like can you really get it back But like, so when you're thinking through those kind of things, are you kind of just like, I'm going to do it. We'll just see what happens or, or how does, how does that kind of play in with, in your mind? Well, it's just stuff, (laughs) right? That's true. (laughs) There'll always be more stuff. There's a lot of stuff being produced, way more stuff than we need produced right now. Right. And I did, before I did that, I had spent some time in Africa And I realized both Africa and India when I was there, I was so happy and I had no stuff and not comfortable situations. I lived in a really uncomfortable little shed in Africa with, um, you know, a tin roof and the bat's wing would sometimes come down between the tin and the wall and the big fuzzy spider. Once I had to stuff the 
the perimeter of my ceiling with toilet paper so spiders and things weren't coming in. And I was so happy. I didn't have any of my belongings. I loved the kids that I was working with there. I felt like I was learning so much from them and I actually felt like I was able to give to them. It was balance. This giving and receiving were in perfect balance. So I, when I did that, I started a non-consumption challenge when I came home. I realized, oh, stuff doesn't actually make me happy. It takes time. You know, mm-hmm. when you have stuff, you have to clean it and take care of it or worry about someone taking it or, you know, and I decided not to buy anything unless I really, really needed it or was exceptionally grateful for it. So before that, sometimes we buy things to try to make us feel happy, right? Oh, I feel sad. I don't have the tools of self-compassion to sit with this sadness. So I will try to eat an ice cream cone (laughs) or buy a skirt instead, right? Yes, retail therapy is very (laughs) real. (laughs) Retail therapy and cheese therapy were my favorites forever. So yeah, I think as we go along our path, we realize we don't need that anymore. It's just stuff. And, you know, if I needed more stuff, then more stuff would come. But it was actually quite liberating. Yeah, I can imagine. It's it's interesting because I'm going through, I, I was raised in, a, in an environment that like I didn't want to get rid of anything, you know, like that was kind of what was passed down to me. And I've been learning to let go of things and and give them away. And, and, and I've I find it very rewarding, actually, where it's like I'm giving them a new home and they're going to be appreciated in a way that I wasn't appreciating them, Mm. you know, and it but it's it's taken me so long to like learn that and and that that attachment to things is such so challenging, you know, we're recording this in my tiny studio apartment. And so it's like I've had to kind of negotiate that idea of like how many, how, what do I really want to surround myself with? You know, I have limited space, you know, and, and I think in this country, it's like we learn that we want bigger, more, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a world of more, right? A bigger house, a bigger everything. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting watching people challenge that notion and mm-hmm. challenging that myself, right? And seeing how, what does life look like? if everything that I have is really, it's that sparking joy, you know, like, like Marie Kondo does. Right. Right. And I, I love that notion. And I feel like that plays so much into that question around attachment. Right. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about how your relationship to your body has been. So you talked a little bit about how when you were a dancer, you were very tough on your body. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I read a, on your, your website, you were talking about how like now you feel like your spine is actually even better than it ever was. So It is. Which is incredible. <laughs> yes. That's so fascinating. So like how how has that kind of shifted and changed and and when do you do you feel like it's it's through yoga or what what really has how has that kind of developed over time yeah good question well i remember the moment when i was young i loved dancing i always danced as a kid and then my teachers started started giving me a hard time around grade 5 that i was too big and I didn't notice it. And I remember yeah. the day that I turned and looked in the mirror in ballet class and noticed I am bigger than the girl in front of me and the girl behind me. Oh, wow. But before that, I was just free, <laughs> right? I'm like, here's this body. So it was very interesting. And to know, because I did a lot of ballet when I was younger, specifically, I was told 
um, which proportions were wrong, that my rib cage was too wide and my neck was too short, my mm-hmm. shoulders were too broad, and my legs were too short, all of these things for that. No one ever said just for ballet, just like those, I kind of thought for life, right? And yeah, I'm like, yeah. too short for what? <laughs> it's a body. And so my career, I did um, I mostly musical theater work. I did jazz and tap and theater dance. But I, training the whole mindset of dance is, I hope it isn't anymore. But it, when, girl, when I was growing up, it was you're not good enough and you never will be. Mm. And that's the way I treated my body. And I was miserable and hungry and tired and sore, all of these things. And, you know, a lot of it had already shifted before I found Dharma. But the amazing thing that Dharma offers is when we practice the asanas, the poses, he always tells us to offer the pose. So our body isn't an object. One of, you know, in yoga, we talk about non-objectification. This is... Uh, one of the yamas, not identifying ourselves as this limited object. But it is a tool to express bhakti or love or devotion through. And if you do yoga in this way, whatever posture you're in, you're sharing the benefits. You're not just doing it for you, but you're imagining, oh, I'm doing this to, to imagine. Did you see Captain Marvel? Yes. I love that. Like in the big, all those lights. I'm like, yeah, that's how yoga feels, right? <laughs> You're in these shapes and imagining that this brilliant light, our essence is, is flowing through and being shared wherever it needs to go. So that shift of moving my body in a way where I was moving it, you know, the path of karma yoga is to learn to do our, our, all our actions without attachment, without expectation to the fruit. So growing up, my body, I had so many attachments, all the training and work I did, it was so I could get something, so I could do something, so I could be something, become something. And yoga is about doing it just out of love of who we are, right? So no expectations. Dharma shares that. That really shifted for me, that the asanas are expression of love just for love's sake. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean... It's so true. It's interesting. I mean, because even, you know, you were saying how hard it was just in the realm of dance specifically and and how, you know, they really are measuring you to a certain specification, right? But I think, you know, all, I mean, I I speak from the perspective of a woman, right? Mm -hmm. But in so many ways, we are all placed in this kind of like idealism of what you're supposed to look like. And I think we're, you know, and it's, it takes so much time for us to kind of learn that you can be, you're perfect just the way you are, right? And that is such a hard lesson to learn because we're, you know, society and and all the scrutiny. But I can imagine in the dance world, it is just heightened to a level, you know, that that is is so hard, especially at such a young age. So that's, I mean, I, I can see how that that really affects you so much. And like learning to change that narrative is is such a lesson. It's a huge lesson. It's also interesting. It's very easy to blame society for this problem. Mm. And I remember years ago, I used to imagine that I had a pet lion sometimes, right? If I was in environments where people wouldn't be kind to me, I'd imagine the lion. Or sometimes I started to bark a little bit about, you know, fight outside. (laughs) It's not true. And then as I went further in my practice, I realized 
If I don't have some programming inside me that already believes what they're saying or resonates with them, that won't happen. So actually who I needed to protect myself from, that conditioning was closer to me than I knew. Mm. And I think, you know, I don't know what people believe about reincarnation. When, you know, Dharma says, I love when he says after class, do you believe in reincarnation? You better, right? (laughs) But it's interesting. If you don't, there's so much suffering. I wasn't raised to believe that. And life seemed so unfair to me. And I suffered a lot from that because I also felt guilt about having certain things and others not. But when... The way it's talked of in yoga is, you know, the purpose of life is to experience everything. We go through all these experiences and then when we're done, whatever, as far as we've gotten on our path, we carry that forward with us and continue from there. So it was perfect that this, you know, that I was brought up into that environment around those belief systems because I needed to bring light to that belief system in me already to be able to heal it. So I don't think I'm a victim to anything in society. I think it was already in me. That's why I was there. Interesting. I Yeah, it's interesting because it's like no matter what, right, we're all going to be kind of subjected to the, the creations of our own mind, mm-hmm. right? So whatever, in whatever way that comes from, like society or our parents or whatever you want to call it, but, but they're creations in our own mind, right? Right. And it's that, it, and it's exactly what you said, that awareness to kind of say, see them for what they are and start to slowly shift the way that you think about them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because someone else may have been told those same things and been like, too big right. for what? No, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> there are some, right? Yeah, that go yeah. through. Like not everyone is triggered by the the same things. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's always so interesting because I think of triggers as being interesting, right? Because mm. when you're triggered by something, it is because there's something in your past that is that it's bringing to light, really, mm-hmm. right? Or something that that you need to kind of resolve realistically if if you choose to do so. Right, right. And so it's like when you look closer at your triggers, I feel like that's kind of your path to like to liberating yourself from those things that are holding you back. A hundred percent. And then we need the courage to not resist them and not be attached to the pleasantness. When Dharma says in reality, when things are difficult, we should be so happy. Oh, thank you that I get (laughs) to learn this karma now, right? That I get to go through this. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I know every, every time like Dharma's little piece of wisdom, just like there's such a blessing every time, but Mm -hmm. yes, exactly. It's that idea where it's like leaning into the hard things, right. Is, is not something that most people, you know, like we all try and avert, avoid the negatives, but when you actually start to recognize them and look at them closer, that's when you, and let them go. I mean, letting go is such a big thing to me right now, where mm. it's that idea of like releasing that tension or releasing those those things that are kind of holding you back. Right. Right. And how much are we are we actually holding on to things that are getting in our way? So it's yeah, I I love all of that. Is there anything else that you want to cover off on that we haven't talked about thus far? Oh my goodness. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think the most important thing is to know that the, the real happiness is, is inside. I think that's where we're all going. I love that the texts say everyone gets there. Mm. No one doesn't make it to the goal. So 
you know, right now we're searching for happiness outside. Oh, maybe in this green juice I'll get a little happiness. <laughs> or, you know, our friends or loved ones, whatever it is. But as we go deeper in our practice and our path, we start to connect to this happiness, this spontaneous happiness that isn't based on anything outside of us. Dharma calls the backup light. And then when we have more of this, we're not as subject to the craving and aversion because we're not trying to identify ourselves as outside of ourselves. We're getting closer and closer. So who we are is not an object. Everything we can perceive or see with our senses, these are objects outside of us, but we are the subject. And important to know that the subject is said to be in a state of perfect peace, this existence, bliss. Yeah, everything is perfect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a couple final questions um, as we wrap up. Um, So, you know, you can, they can be quick and nothing too crazy. Um, So the first one is, how would you describe your current relationship to yourself? Oh, I'm my best friend. (laughs) I love it. And COVID was great for that. I'm like, okay, this is your friend. That's beautiful. Formerly worst enemy. Yes, yes. So it's been that shift. Mm -hmm. I love that. What is the best lesson that you've learned recently? Ah, best lesson that I've learned that everything is worthy of love. Hmm. Everything, without exception. But what love is is different than we think. So sometimes love is motivating or inspiring or encouraging, and sometimes it's soothing, you know, listening to my, yeah, everything. That's great. Um, oh, this one will be interesting. What do you consider most valuable to you right now? And this doesn't have to, so based on our conversation, this doesn't have to be something physical. Right. But, or, and I actually, I'd be curious what your answer would be to something physical. (laughs) And then just in general, like, what do you consider most valuable? Well, something physical most valuable is my relationship with my teacher. Mm. I am so grateful that life led me towards Dharma and, you know, that I'm able to study with him and be in his presence. And what's most valuable beyond that is the little bit of wisdom that's been awakened by being in his presence. (laughs) So I feel when I'm not with him, I still hear his voice sometimes. (laughs) That would be the most valuable thing to me, that inner guidance. That's great. And what, okay, this one I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, What is the number one skill you believe that everyone should work on? (laughs) Self-compassion. 100%. Everybody needs to be loved. Everyone is running around desperate. Will you love me? Will you love me? Can you take care of me? Right? Everyone wants compassion, but isn't quite sure if they are worthy of it or deserving of it. So first, I think to know, yes, you are the way you are in this moment. Self-compassion and forgiveness is a big part, but forgiveness doesn't have to be so complicated. It doesn't have to be a bunch of steps. You don't even have to go back and talk to the person that, you know, you feel that you need forgiveness from or from yourself. It's pure acceptance and understanding that in that moment, 
That is the best you could do according to your conditions. Mm. And the past is over, right? If we could just, right? If all our attention was in the present moment, we never suffer. Everything we need, we have right now. I'm sitting on this amazing chair talking to you. Nothing needed, right? No problems. Problems need the imagination of future or past. So off of that question, I am curious, like how do you feel, because I agree with you, like suffering is so brought out of the past and the future. So how do you feel about like when you're thinking about the future? Like, do you not have like any kind of anxiety or like, how does that like kind of work for you? People often ask, what's your future goal? Mm -hmm. My future goal is to know what love really is, which helps ease anxiety because I can be learning it no matter what happens. Mm. So, of course, there's times where not as much anymore, where I used to really worry about how will I support myself, all of these things, which are natural. And then I feel like it's been proved to me over the last 20 years that it's being taken care of. I can't see how. My imagination of how my life would unfold would have been much smaller than how it has been. It's been perfect for me, right? Not for someone else, (laughs) but... um, So when you're setting goals for what you want in the future, if the goals are a quality instead of a possession or a thing, it's, I think that really helps. Hmm. That's so interesting. Actually, one of my goals is around self-compassion. So I feel like I need to lean into that a little more. And you can have it right now. Right. That's the best thing about them. So the quality, you know, if we're thinking, oh, I need this big house, you're imagining a big house. Of course, you can do this too. We can visualize and we can materialize things and you can imagine how you'd feel when you're sitting in it. But you don't want that. You want the way that you'd feel sitting in it. So usually it's to feel safe. All right. So can you let yourself feel safe right now? How would you feel safe right now? Sometimes, oh, if someone was listening to me. Okay, can you listen to yourself? (laughs) Or if someone was holding me. Okay, can you hold yourself, right? I often hug myself (laughs) and soothe my arms. I do the same. (laughs) Right? Whatever it is, whatever you think that's going to give you this feeling of safety or security or acceptance, you have the power right now to... Give that to yourself and then just keep going and then to serve. Okay. Whatever it is, let it be shared so others can have some too. Right. Right. Yeah. That's absolutely beautiful. It's something I feel like I still struggle with so many times, but it's true. Um, I love what you said right there because it's like when I am being really hard on myself, I ask myself, how can I love myself a little more? Mm. You know, and I try, I like will give myself a little hug too, because it's like, we, we are so hard on ourselves. Yeah. You know? I, like I just, I think that's, and it's learning to, to be a little more gentle with yourself. And that's really hard. You yes. Know? Gentle, but also sometimes you need to say, okay, keep going. So there's a yin and a yang to self-compassion. And sometimes people are worried, oh, if I practice self-compassion, I'll be wimpy and, you know. No, think of it like when a kid falls and they scrape their knee, first you go over and soothe them. 
but then you say, now we walk again, mm. <laughs> right? So I think people get confused. Oh, it's just soothing, soothing, soothing. No, you soothe when it's required. And then motivating, inspiring, and also creating boundaries is part of self-compassion. Absolutely. Right? So doing those pieces too. So it's also very s- strong, but treating yourself the way that you wish instead of, oh, people should treat me this way or why, do it. Right. Because I think such a big part of that is that you learn how to, like what you are willing to receive, right, is, mm-hmm. is going to be elevated to the love that you are willing, that you are giving yourself, right? You're not going to accept anything less than that. Yeah. And that is such a big, that's the boundary piece that you're talking about right there, right? Being willing to receive also, many people are afraid to receive the good. Yes. And we have to be open to receiving knowing that we wish to be a conduit for it. Not that it's greedy or bad, but that it comes down to your idea of creation. You know, is this for punishment and judgment or, you know, because we're flawed? That there's an idea that creation is that we've fallen from God. And then if you have that, then you'll perceive everything through those eyes and kind of have a sense, oh, we're not worthy, we're not deserving. I was raised more that way not by anybody's fault. It was what they had in them. Mm-hmm. And the other is to believe that everything is an expression of this divine love that we can't even fathom. And if you have that understanding of that creation as an unfoldment, expansion of this consciousness, this love, unconditional love, well, then of course you're meant to receive it and share it. Absolutely. I I love that whole question of deserving. Mm. I think it's huge, right? Where we often, the good things in life, we feel undeserving of them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but what if you actually felt that the vastness of life is, is like, is beautiful and meant for you, right? What if you accepted all that into your life and instead of holding yourself back? We're worthy and deserving just because of our existence, our real nature. Beautiful. All right. So I think let's wrap it up here. This is so lovely. Um, yeah, those final questions went stretched a little longer, but it was so nice. Again, thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today. Um, Sam offers a free satsang every Tuesday evening. And do you want to say what time that is? Sure. It's 720 Central, 820 Eastern. Okay. And you can find Sam um, on Instagram at Sam the Yogi, or you can find her on her website, samtheyogi.com. Thank you so much again to Sam Manchulenko for being our first guest on A Way of Thinking. And thank you so much to all of you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you loved this episode, please hit the follow button and share this episode with your friends. I hope some of the beautiful wisdom shared today resonates with you and perhaps creates some change in your way of thinking. Remember that I believe in you and I am so excited for the day that you believe in you too. Let's continue learning and growing together. Tune in each Wednesday for new episodes of A Way of Thinking.